working on, wow, what do you know it worked? Incredible. Kingdom living. But this is going to be our final beatitude in this long series of, um, I, I think we're going to have a wrap-up message next week that God's already talking to me about, but our final beatitude. Um, why don't you go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 5. It's probably been a couple of weeks since you've been in Matthew 5. So Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 10. Verse 10. It will be on the screen. I spoke too soon, Ryan. <laughs> it says green, and it's not forwarding. So I'll point. So go ahead. There we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. Let's begin. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next, Ryan. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Folks, to be honest with you, I'm having a little bit of a hard time preaching this message today, mainly because I don't have a clue, and I don't think we, especially in the North American church, really have a clue what persecution is. Do we? When did all of this persecution begin? Well, obviously, from day one, mankind, you know, and Cain and Abel, they were at odds with one another. So I guess you could say the first persecution began back then. But when did it begin with the church? Well, in order to to answer that question and uh, where it really began with Christians and the church, you have to go back to the beginning where the church began, and that was the first century A.D., so just a little bit of a background here for this message today. Uh, the, the first original persecution began really uh, under the Roman Empire. That's where the church was born, the day of Pentecost, and the church exploded, and 3,000 were added to the church that day. And uh, from that moment on, persecution began to arise mainly beginning from the Jews who didn't want any of this to be spread throughout the area of the region, let alone the entire world. There were, there were two main forms of persecution that began, and, and the reasons why they began. The, the first is there were many false stories. There were slanders that started against the young church. For example, when Jesus said in John chapter 6, he said things like this, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And when he said these things, then the early church who knew what that really meant, the outside world and the Jews and the Roman Empire began to accuse them of cannibalism. 
That's some of the false stories that arose. What else? When the church would greet each other, you've heard this with a holy kiss. They would go up and uh, greet someone like that. Uh, there were false rumors that began to spread about the church being a sexually immoral group of people. When they proclaimed their allegiance to Jesus Christ, they were accused of being political revolutionaries trying to overthrow the Roman government. Those were some of the early things that were said about the church, and the church began to be persecuted on behalf of that. But the main reason that the church came under persecution is this. It was mainly political. At this time in history, the Roman Empire included almost the entire known world at the time. And the huge challenge for the Roman Empire was how do we unify all of these countries and all these nations and all these different languages and different speaking people, how do we unify them all into one single governmental system of Rome? They did not know how to do that, but after several years they began to see how they could do that. You see, no matter what the culture was, no matter what mankind was doing, mankind wanted to worship something or someone. There was always some kind of god or goddess that was being worshipped, that was being invented in order for people to pray to, in order for people to sacrifice to or to build altars for or statues or temples. So Rome decided to make, and there's two to this one, uh, Rome decided, one more, Ryan, they decided to make their emperors someone to be worshipped. Or in this case, they elevated their emperors to be incarnate, meaning they wanted their emperors to be God, a divine being with honors to be paid to him, temples to be erected to honor and declare his divinity. Now, over the years, the Romans found that making everyone bow down and worship the emperor as God was the one thing that could unify all the countries, all the nations under Roman rule. For example, if you were under Roman authority, you were required once a year to burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Those were some of the things that the early church faced. Thus, worshiping the emperor became mandatory. Now, what's interesting, Satan has his ways of getting us, tempting us to compromise. They also, the Romans also had a law that said, you can worship any god you want. It doesn't matter if you want to worship the God of Jehovah, Jews, if you want to do that. You can worship whatever God you want. You can have however many gods you want, just as long as the emperor and Caesar is first. Just as long as you pay allegiance to him first and foremost. You bow to him. Once you do that, kind of sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, doesn't it? Once you do that first, then we don't really care what you do. So you can imagine some of the early Christians were thinking to themselves, I can do this. Outwardly, I'll just act like, you know, I'm a good Roman citizen or a good Roman, I'm worshiping Caesar. But inwardly, I'm going to worship God. Some of you are already shaking your head and you know that is not the way that it ought to be. My father-in-law is here with us this morning and one of the things 
I've always heard him say is that a person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Think about that for a little bit. But this right here, this system, this political system under the Roman Empire is what got the church in trouble. You see, for the Christians, they could not do this. The Christians refused to bow to Caesar. They refused to bow to the emperor. For them, Jesus was Lord and there is no other. And they would worship and honor no other name but Jesus Christ. Consequently, the Christians were then uh, branded as outlaws and criminals. And Rome could not stand for this. Thus, the early persecution of the church began. Some of you know these things, but some of you may not. Some of you have heard rumors that are unfortunately altogether true. But what the early church, and even down through the years, and, and into the 12, uh, 12th century, and 13th century, and 14th, and the dark ages, the things that our brothers and sisters endured are nearly unspeakable. Some of you might want to know what I'm talking about. The early church, they were thrown uh, to the lions. And the lions were just tear the Christians apart. Back in 1415, and this began years before that, but back in 1415, uh, they would take Christians and they would burn them at the stake. John Huss, who came out strong against the Catholic Church, refusing to decline and renounce what he was saying against the church, they tied him to a stake and they burned him at the stake. But these were just merciful, quick deaths for those that went through things a lot worse. It's kind of hard to hear, but Roman Emperor Nero, he would wrap Christians in pitch and set them on fire, and he would use them as torches to light his garden in the evening. Some of these things you can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Others... Others he sowed, he actually would sow a person, a Christian, into the skins of wild animals and then he would set his hunting dogs loose to tear these people apart. Christians were, tor- were tortured. Molten lead was poured over their bodies. Eyes were plucked out. All down through time, even today, believers have suffered terrible prices. For the cause of Christ. I want you to, you can, I don't, we're not going to be in Matthew 5 anymore, but go to Hebrews 11. Let's look at this. Some of you know what I'm going to read, but Hebrews chapter 11, I was thinking of this verse this morning. As you're turning, obviously we know the stories of ISIS and how they're beheading Christians and other people and of other religions happening today. Hebrews chapter 11, starting with verse 32, says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, 
Obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the violence of fire, escape time, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the enemies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, but others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Wow. Were tempted. Were slain with the sword. These are our brothers and our sisters. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. These Christians, these brothers and sisters, did not receive the immediate earthly reward. But in the end, they gained it all. I'm reminded of Revelation 12:11 that says, And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And it also says, And they did not love their lives to the death. What does that mean? That means that Christians did not turn their backs on the Lord even in time of death. Listen, church. The world has not changed since time began. We have to understand that this world is not our home. It's Satan's home. I've said it umpteen times, I'll say it again, but those of us in North America, in the North American church, I think sometimes we're too attached. We're too attached to this world. We're too attached to our earthly home. We're too attached to our things. We have to remember that we are living in Satan's realm, his domain. Because of this, the world that you and I live in, the world that you and I work in, the world that you and I play in, that we shop in, this world is not going to understand the culture of the kingdom that I've been talking about for several months. And what they do understand offends them. Right? What they do understand offends them. Back in 2012, the CEO of Chick-fil-A came out with his traditional definition of marriage. And it created a firestorm from the media. And the company came under extreme duress because of uh, political figures that were coming against them, telling them you can't do this. See, this thing called Christianity is going to cause problems every once in a while. It's going to cause the conflict every once in a while. Now, there's a happy ending, obviously, to Chick-fil-A. Um, one of the days back in 2012, after all of this came out, actually on August 1st, 2012, 
Chick-fil-A restaurants had the greatest day in their history because after they were suffering this persecution, word got out, and what you know, people like us and other people, they flooded the Chick-fil-A to give them business and give them support, and they had the greatest day in their history. So praise the Lord, there is still a remnant in the United States of America. I know I'm looking at them right now. I'm preaching to you right now. But why did this happen? Because Satan absolutely hates it when kingdom living principles gets gets promoted. Every time the values of the kingdom of God that we've been talking about for week upon uh, weekend here, every time the kingdom values take precedent in our world, Satan and his minions will rise up and they will do anything and everything they can to stop you and me. That's just the way that it is. Just the way that it is. Oftentimes, it's through hate-filled individuals, whether through their actions or through their words. I believe it was satanic forces who prompted an Oregon city to shut down the business of Aaron and Melissa Klein, a couple who owned a small bakery in Oregon, because they refused to cater a homosexual's wedding. A couple that is still facing upwards to $135,000 in fines. It's because this world does not understand the culture of God's kingdom. It offends them so they are going to act against it. Hmm. I don't know if I should say this or not. It wasn't in my notes, and I'm not even sure where I'm going to go with this, but I'm just going to say it anyways. Um, how does Christ want us to act in times like this? When the world and satanic forces and all the evil comes against us like that. There are different views. Some people say you just need to boycott that restaurant just need to boycott that company or that store or whatever it might be. I may have said this before, I don't know, but I'm not altogether sure that's what Jesus would do. I think there may be times it might be appropriate, and I'll allow you and the Lord to talk about that, but our family was talking about this over the weekend. If the world just sees us act like they do, and get angry and just say, well, we're just not going to support you. I often wonder, is that going to draw them to Jesus Christ or is that just going to push them away? Say amen or ouch. Sometimes we need, we need, not sometimes, all the time we need to be Jesus to these people. And we need to show the love of Jesus Christ that even though we don't agree with what they're doing, we're still going to love them. I don't know. Am I off my rocker? (laughs) I'm not off my rocker. I'll just say this as well. Target. Um, They now, unless they've changed, but, you know, their restrooms are unisex. But it's, I believe, I think they're still, a man can go in a woman's restroom and a woman can go in a man's restroom. To me, I have a little more hard time with that because now that's kind of endangering my kids. 
I don't want to go putting them in a, in a difficult situation. So I'm not frequent. I'm not fre- fre- I'm not going there as much. <laughs> you all get up here sometime and try and preach, right? <laughs> I'm not going there as much, but I also don't know that just saying, "Forget you. We're not going to. We're not going to go. We're going. We're going to show you." We're showing them, all right. We're showing them that Jesus is not very appealing. Hmm. But persecution. This world doesn't understand the culture of God's kingdom. You see, we have two huge opposing sides. On one side, you have Satan's kingdom and those in the world that live in that kingdom. And on the other side, you have God's kingdom and those who have chosen to walk with him and those who have chosen to promote his values. And if you mix the two together, there's bound to be a nasty collision. This should come as no surprise Jesus never uh, minced words whenever he told you and I what we would face, Ryan. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a sermon is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. How are some ways that the original Christians experienced persecution? Now, we've talked about some of that earlier. But practically speaking, what are some ways that the early church faced persecution? I'm just going to hit three things real quick. And I would venture to say, and I would even encourage you, this is probably going to spark some conversation when you all go out to lunch. And I hope that it does, because it needs to get us thinking. But, go ahead, Ryan. First, the early church's Christianity, their Christianity might well disrupt their work. What do I mean by that? Let's just take that, let's just suppose that a man is a stonemason, someone who works with stone, brick, mortar, all of that. Sounds like a reputable occupation. But what if this individual's boss said, I want you to build an altar and a temple that's going to be used for a God? That's going to be used for pagan worship. What was a Christian supposed to do? Or let's just suppose you made clothes. You worked with uh, the clothing and, and um, you were told to make a robe that you knew was going to be the high priest robe of a pagan god. They would sacrifice to their pagan idols and gods and you knew it wasn't going to be anything to do with Christianity. What are you supposed to do? See my point? This Jesus thing is getting in the way of life. It affects us today. What if your boss at work wants you to fudge the numbers a little bit just to make the report look better? 
What if the, the company that you work for, you know, is a strong, outward promoting company of an agenda that is extremely liberal, that, that has principles that goes against God's word? What's someone to do? What if you are asked to do something on your job that you know the word of God says? See, Jesus, he, he's going to disrupt our work sometimes. That's one area that the early church faced persecution. And I would happen to believe that there are some of us here today that have faced that kind of persecution as well in our area of work. Two, their Christianity definitely disrupted one's social life. Mm. Definitely disrupted one's social life. In the ancient world, most feasts, most dinners, were held in the temple of some god. One of the gods that was most commonly worshipped was Serapis. And when invitations were sent out to guests, it would read like this. I invite you to dine with me at the table of our Lord Serapis. What's a Christian supposed to do when he gets an invitation like that? Even an ordinary meal would begin with a cup of wine that would be poured out in honor of a God. It was as commonplace back then as you and I saying grace over a meal today. What is a Christian supposed to do? I know, I know that we need to associate with the world in order to win them to Christ. But there is a definite difference between this versus associating with the world by partaking in their immoral lifestyle. Somebody say amen to that. The Christian life can sometimes be a lonely life. Don't get me wrong. Again, I'm not saying that we should not at times hang out and associate ourselves with the world. Jesus says, Go ye therefore into the world and make disciples out of all nations. Make believers. We can't do that if we're not mixing with the world. I get that. That's not what I'm trying to say. But if it means that we are going to be tempted to participate in godless practices or events, we best not get involved at all to begin with. But that's going to come with a price. That's going to label us It's going to brand us as just one of those holier-than-thou people. How far will we go because Christianity is going to disrupt our social life? Sometimes even bringing persecution to it. And the last one that I'll talk about quickly is their Christianity was likely to disrupt one's family and home life. Hmm. Frequently, it would happen that one member of the family would accept Christ while the others wouldn't. And immediately there became a split in the family, many times causing lifelong separations. Jesus knew this, which is why he said in Matthew, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, 
And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Church, it's no different today, is it? No different. How many believing wives suffer some form of difficulty, some form of persecution at home because their husbands have not followed after this same God as they have? Or vice versa. In foreign countries, uh, many of the Hindu-speaking or Muslim-speaking countries, denouncing one's religion will result in either a total banishment from the family or in some cases, death. Many are treated as though they were never a part of the family of God or the family, not the family of God, were never a part of the family to begin with. This treatment is all too often played out even in our local Amish community. Not all of them, but far too many of them. You see, that's a form of persecution for the cause of Christ. And there's a reason why Jesus tagged that last sentence on to that verse right there. Did you get that? And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Sometimes being a Christian is carrying that cross. It's going to be suffering some kind of difficulty, some kind of persecution. But that's a cross that we bear. Jesus bore for us. That is the cross that we need to bear for him. What's happening, what what I'm afraid is happening far too often, is that today many will claim Christianity, but they'll do everything they can to avoid persecution. Including letting down on biblical standards and principles. They'll compromise their God-given convictions while condoning sinful things that are so much a part of this culture. And that mindset has crept into the church. Condoning homosexuality or condoning abortion or condoning all of these things that the Word of God denounces. We need to remember Jesus' words. When he prayed for his disciples, he also prayed for us in John 17 when he said this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen, we must first recognize and accept the fact that we will never be a part of this world. Somebody say amen to that. We will never be a part of this world. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. It's just a hotel on the way. It would be so much easier if we could all just kind of sell all that we had and go out and buy some property and just live in one big commune together, one big compound together. I don't know, we'd probably kill each other after a week, don't you think? It would be so much easier to do that. But that's not what Jesus called to do. He just said, 
I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He has called us to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus has asked his heavenly Father to keep us from the evil one, but do not remove us, lest we have no influence on the world. Sometimes, however, this will result in persecution. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm not trying to say that we're all going to die a horrible death like we've talked about, like has taken place in the history of the church or in today's modern world. I'm not trying to say that, but I am trying to say this. And I say this with three, four fingers pointed back at me. If we have not suffered or endured or encountered some kind of persecution in our lives, something's wrong. Something's, we're, we're not, we're, we're not living the culture of the kingdom somewhere, somehow, some way in our life. It's just going to be a matter of time. I remember whenever I worked, I lived here years ago and I worked up in Akron. Um, to me, this was a form of persecution because of just what it put me under but I worked with a co-worker and, and it, he was kind of my boss he was like an intermediate level boss and every time that he was around me he would just use the name of Jesus in vain constantly over and over and every time he said it, it was just like mm, mm, mm. now you have to allow the Lord to lead you in those individual situations. And if you're never going to see anybody again, and have, it's, that's the world that we live in, okay? But I knew that I had to work with this guy every day. And, and the Lord began to tap me and said, how much do you love me? Are you just going to allow this guy just to continue to drag my name through the mud? So I asked to speak to him in his office and um, I even forget his name. I remember what he looks like, but I forget his name. I didn't go in there, but I went in there with as, as much humility as I could, and I said, look, I said, I can't, I'm just asking you to hear me out on this. I can't tell you what to do, but I'm just asking you. Every time I said, you know, you use the name Jesus. I said, I love that man. And I said, he means the world to me. And I said, if you would just help me out and just be a little bit mindful. I didn't know what was going to happen. But I knew immediately I was going to be branded as this, oh, you're one of those guys. But fortunately for me, he said, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. And from there on out, things were fine, things were good. But folks, this thing called Jesus Christ is going to impact our life. It had better impact our life. It had better, it better um, um, affect the way that we talk. It needs to affect the kind of jokes that we tell. It needs to affect how we laugh or how, what we don't laugh whenever everybody else around you is laughing at this terrible joke. It affects everything. Maybe that's a little bit of the persecution that you know you need to endure at work. I don't know. It's a cross. And when you think about what some of our brothers and sisters have endured, we know nothing of that level. 
We tell this final story, then I'll close. There is a city in the southern Philippines, and there was a individual who worked for the Far East Broadcasting Company. Uh, it's a Christian uh, broadcasting company in that part of the world. And he was a radio engineer, and his nickname was Pongo. Pongo was his nickname. Let me just read this. Pongo was there the day that the Muslim gunman drove a motorcycle into the radio compound, ran into the studio, and with guns spewing deadly bullets, shot and killed Greg Bacabus, the Far East broadcasting engineer who kept the station running. They also killed Greg Hapala, a pastor whose gospel program was aired over the states, over the stations. That was enough for Pongo. He had had it. He knew that he very well may be the next person to be gunned down. He had a wife and children, and he didn't want to take the risk. Pongo had a motorized pedicab, a motorcycle with a sidecar attached, which is used for inexpensive transportation. Pongo reasoned that with a degree of luck, he might even be able to turn the sideline into a real money-making business, at least enough to support his family. The risk of being killed in traffic was less than being shot by a terrorist. Quit while he was ahead. That was his thought. In the days that followed, however, as Pongo drove his pedicab, he thought of the two men who had died for the cause of Jesus Christ. And he began to understand how the disciples felt when they all fled as Jesus was arrested in the garden. Enough, Pongo finally thought. He went back to the radio studio and told the staff that he would not be ashamed, excuse me, that he would be ashamed to die in a traffic accident. If he had to be killed, he wanted to die for the cause of Christ. He then proceeded to go about his work quietly, apprehensively. He prayed and waited. Then it happened. In the words of a colleague, quote, A few days after Pongo returned to work, a motorcycle raced into the studio compound. Remembering that the gunmen had come in on a motorcycle before, the staff feared that they had returned to finish the job of killing all the broadcasters. People dove under tables and desks, hid behind cabinets, scrambled to get into closets, but not Pongo. He deliberately walked to the radio console in the studio and sat down. If I'm to be shot, he said, I'd rather be broadcasting the gospel, not hiding under a table. It was a false alarm. No one was hurt, but Pongo did not know this when he took his post at the radio console. What a display of courage. <laughs> what we need is courage. Courage derived from a life that has counted the cost. No matter how small the persecution might be, no matter how great the persecution 
persecution might be. Ernest Hemingway wrote something very profound. He wrote this, Courage is fear that has prayed. Courage is fear that has prayed. Again, I'm not trying to freak anyone out. But this is the next beatitude in the series that, German, that Jesus spoke on the mountainside that day. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But one thing that I do know, one day all of it's going to be made right. A couple of verses, Ryan. Blessed are you when men hate you, Jesus said in Luke. And when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And then this is another verse that we can think of. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If we will endure until the end. Jesus told us that day on the mountainside that not only will we get to be a part of the kingdom of God, get to be a part of his kingdom, get to be a part of the family of God, but he also said that we will one day experience the eternal joys of heaven reserved for those that are not in the world, not a part of the world, but are his witnesses for Jesus Christ. Come on up, team. We're just going to sing a simple chorus this morning. Again, whether it's small or great, will you make the determination that no matter what, you're going to serve the Lord? Maybe I'm speaking to just one person this morning to where you know you're facing some things at work that it's time for you to stand up and be a witness for Jesus Christ. You've been fearing what it might cause you. You might be fearing some retribution. Some backlash. Today, God wants you to take a stand for Him. Jesus said, If you are ashamed of me before men, that I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. Maybe you need to get some of that courage, fear that is prayed. Let's pray. God, thank you. Lord, I would rather suffer for you than suffer for things that are not of the kingdom. And God, we thank you. I I believe there are those here that might be facing something right now that they know they need to take a stand for you. Father, if there are those here that perhaps they're living with an unbelieving spouse, God, I pray that they would see that their journey is taking up their cross. That you're calling them to stay faithful to you. Yes, you will help them navigate through the relationship with the unbelieving spouse, but God, to stay faithful to you. 
to be a witness to that individual and to suffer and to endure whatever it is. God, you suffered it all. You suffered it, Jesus Christ, when you went to the cross. And we are going to have different crosses to bear at different times in our life. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you that the reward is great. The peace, the abundant joy that we can have in this life for suffering for you is a glorious thing. And the eternal rewards we can only dream about, but we know that they're true as well. So, Father, this morning we're going to follow you. We have decided to follow Jesus, no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.